and ask that you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to continue our study in the longing for heaven. So uh, we've been off for the, the last couple of weeks, and so I want to remind you of a couple of things. One, we start off by talking about Satan's lies that he tells about uh, God himself in the place of heaven. We looked at what it meant to have the Garden of Eden and how that was supposed to expand into all the world. We talked about overcoming our fear of death, that we shouldn't fear death. We talked about Christ as he told the, the man on the cross that he would be today in paradise. We looked at the rich man and Lazarus, and then we looked at the resurrection of the body. And so I'm condensing five weeks into three weeks, but this one I think is very important to us because it's one of the things that we need to, to understand and talk about. But is, is there a purgatory? Is there a place where there is a purifying fire? And so I'm asking you to come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, looking at verses 5 through 15, because this is one of the passages uh, that the Catholic Church would go to in order to enhance its understanding of purgatory. So let us look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. For I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. For he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So according to the grace of God giving to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you, Lord, we ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to move because this is your word and the Holy Spirit can only teach us what is true. And so, Fathers, we look to this passage, we look to other passages, Lord, may we be manifest to the reality that you are the one who is teaching us truth and truth matters. So, Father, let it apply it to our lives and then, Lord, let us be bold as we go forth to speak and to teach others about the truth of your word. And more importantly, Lord, that we would talk about the gospel message of Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for ours, so that we might receive his righteousness before you. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, today's going to be a little bit different, because usually I'm teaching expositorily. This is going to be a topical so we're going to look at some different things because I want you to get the, the background. I want you to get a solid footing in regards to this. So the first thing we're going to talk about is what is the Apocrypha? Because not just this passage, but the main passage for the Catholic Church comes from 2 Maccabees. Now, again, if you were to look, most people in here, if you were to look in your Bibles, you wouldn't find 2 Maccabees. Okay, but I have my 
handy-dandy Catholic Bible, as well as my Bible I teach from. So I do have 2 Maccabees. Now, why do I have two Bibles? Well, that's a great question. Okay? So we're going to talk about what is the Apocrypha and why is it a big deal. So the first thing we just see is that there is a canon of Scripture. What is canon? It's the rule. And it's the rule of what books we put into the Bible. So there are questions that we should be asking in regards to this. Like, when did this happen? Who made the critical decisions of deciding which books are to be found within the Scripture? And why should we think that they got it right? Now, again, I think this is very important because, again, we're making a very clear statement that this is the Word of God. And this is going to become more and more apparent because especially with, if uh, again, if Biden and, and Harris are our new uh, presidential and vice presidential candidates, this is going to be very important for us. Because this does not just contain the Word of God. The Word of God is not just found within the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. We're not talking about community of faith. We're talking about people who believe that this is the sure foundation and God has been faithful to give us this word. And as he's given this word, he has protected the word. So we ask these kind of questions. And so then we begin to look, well, what is the evidence? Now, there's two types of evidence. There's the historical evidence. Okay, and I know I'm giving this to you in a, in a quick, you know, five to ten minutes talking about this. There are volumes upon volumes of books that are written on this. Okay, so if you want to go into extra study, you want to go to the Chicago 1978 biblical statement on inerrancy and infallibility, you can do a study on that. There are plenty of books out there to talk about what I'm going to talk about in a condensed version. Okay, but talking to who I'm talking to, the majority of your people are going to go, yeah, okay. Okay? And I get that. But there is historical evidence for us because all the Old Testament books found in your Bible were pretty much decided and established by the time of Jesus. So the Old Testament books that you find within your scripture, there's really no dissension. There's no discussion about it. It's accepted because Jesus accepted everything in the Old Testament. So we have that perspective, but then we get to the New Testament. We have um, most of that was established by the 4th century. 22 out of the 27 were accepted by the 2nd century. Now, what does that mean for the other seven? Okay. Well, it meant that they went under greater scrutiny. Let me read to you the the things that kind of happen in regards to these books. This explains the abundance of caution that the church used in officially recognizing works that are could be that are could be inspired. For this was the Antigomena, which is these seven books, were less readily accepted, not because they were flawed, but because the early church was exceedingly careful in what it endorsed as inspired text. Why? Because right after Jesus, there were false things and knockoffs. We get that. We understand that there are always knockoff things from the real thing. And so the church wanted to make sure, exceedingly sure, that we had the right books. 
And so by the time that the fourth century came about, there was an understanding that these books were accepted as canonical. It's our scripture. And so we have all of these books. Now, how do we know that these books are the ones that we said? And it says this, in short, books were recognized as canonical if they were written by an apostle or under the apostle's direction. Two, that it positively explained true Christian doctrine and it made some claim or connection to inspiration in and of itself. They were accepted by the doctrinally loyal churches and they were suitable for public reading. Okay, so this is what distinguishes our canon from the canon of the Catholic Church. Now, there are other writings. And these other writings are known as Apocrypha. Now, there are within the Apocrypha, and Apocrypha means hidden books. And there's the Old Testament Apocrypha, which means it was written between the time of the prophets and the time of Jesus. And then there's New Testament Apocrypha. So the Old Testament Apocrypha, they're considered to be useful books, but not canonical. So it's also that this was not Jesus and the early church fathers never mentioned any of the Apocrypha books. Never. So we have this understanding that, again, there's some useful books. You can read them, but don't say that they're scripture. Now, the New Testament Apocrypha was never considered to be canonical. Why? Two very specific reasons. Most of them were written in the 2nd or 3rd century, so they had no connection to the apostles. And a lot of the material that's found in the New Testament Apocrypha is antithetical to the Christian doctrine. So they were never, ever considered to be a part of the Bible. So the 66 books that you have in your scripture is good, trustworthy. And that is where you find the word of God. Now, you might ask the question, so why did the Catholic Church accept the Apocrypha? Well, there is a place called the Council of Trent that met, listen, they started meeting in 1545 and they met till 1563. And during those years, they came up with the major doctrines of the Catholic Church. Meaning that they said, it's yes, you have faith in Christ, but you also have good works. This is also the council that established transubstantiation. Meaning that the bread and the wine that you find in the Catholic Mass actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus at every Mass is re-crucified for our sins. They also established the power of the Pope and the councils saying that the Pope and councils are co-equal with Scripture. And they also then established the Apocrypha. They approved it. And they also established the idea of purgatory and praying for the dead. Now, I want you to understand that this Council of Trent happened after the debates between Luther and Tetzel. But it what it comes down to very much, and it's why we are called Protestants, why we are protesting, is what is more authoritative, the Pope or Scripture? And we say sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture in terms of Scripture. And it's no Pope over top of the Bible. There's no Pope equal with the Bible. The Pope has to come underneath the Bible. 
And so we understand that it has to be always going back to Scripture. So if someone comes up to you and starts making a statement or says something, you should always ask, where does it say that in the Bible? And if it doesn't, thank them. I appreciate that you have a word of God for me. But unless you go to the Scripture, that's just your opinion. So I appreciate it, but I'm going to obey the word. So we have this sola scriptura, this authority, and this is a big deal because what we do is we're dealing with indulgences. Okay? So what are indulgences? So we have um, indulgences are reducing the amount of punishment for sin. That's, in essence, what an indulgence is. Now, Tetzel, Johannes Tetzel back in Germany, uh, was one of the people who gets into a debate with Luther over, can we do this? Now, again, this hasn't been settled, so there's, there's an open debate. Okay? And so Tetzel is just doing what he's told to do. Because what's happening are these are papal indulgences. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Pope seemingly has the authority to offer these indulgences, these rights, where he would actually sign off on a piece of paper and you could buy it or you could do things in order to earn forgiveness of sins. So it started, we know, as early as 1095 with Pope Urban II, who gave indulgences for people to go fight in the um, Crusades. We know that. Okay, so they were given these indulgences. Hey, go fight, go die. But it doesn't matter because I gave you some indulgences, so your sins will be forgiven. So we find ourselves, though, later at Pope Leo X in 1515. Now, these are the indulgences that affect this situation. So Pope Leo X had a bishop who was um, who owned a bank loan. And he needed to repay it. And so not only did he have to repay a loan to the bank, but they were also rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And they needed money. So what's a better way to raise money than to make everyone feel guilty? Now listen, how were they able to give indulgences? Well, there's a thing for the Catholic Church that's called a treasury of merit. Now, this treasury of merit means that people like Jesus, Mother Mary, the apostles, the saints, they live such good lives that they got to go straight to heaven. But because they live such good lives, they left some of their merit behind for the Pope to give away for others who maybe didn't do so well. Okay? So Tetzel was conscribed to go out and preach indulgences, and he was told to go preach um, in all of Germany and raise this money. And Tetzel was good. He was a, he was a salesman. And so Tetzel went into Jürtebug, which is about an, aisle, uh, an hour's drive away from Witt, Wittenberg, where Luther was, because he wasn't allowed to go to Wittenberg because they were the conservatives. So he couldn't go there, but he got about an hour away. And he started preaching these indulgences. And this is what he is recorded as saying. Give to the church your might and the gracious Holy Father in Rome will see to it that you and your dead relatives will be in paradise itself, not enduring for a moment the purging fires and flames of purgatory. Now that seems pretty good, doesn't it? 
if I can buy my way out of hell, that's pretty good. And that's what people were thinking. And so what happens is this is being preached. And then all of a sudden, Luther gets wind of it. Why? Because people that were in his church are now traveling to buy these indulgences. And they're coming back and they're telling Luther about what's going on. Hey, I bought these indulgences and now I don't have to worry about my sins anymore. And they came back with this catchy tune. When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And they started to believe this. Now, now here's an application for us. It is easy to get caught up in guilt. It's why I'm very tongue-in-cheek when I say, you would do this if you love Jesus. Now, I might not be selling indulgences, but there are definitely churches around this country that are guilting people to do things and to give money. Now, I want to make this very clear. It doesn't mean that I don't get to tell you I think these are good things for you. We condense our values from the Scripture. and The values that we have are worship, teaching, nurture, and reaching. Now, I think everybody should be doing something in each one of those categories. Should we all be doing the same thing? No. Are we all called to do the same thing? No. Does it mean that if we're called to do something, then we have to do it forever? No. There are times, there are seasons to do things. But I do believe in regards to worship, you should be praying. You should be studying the Word. You should be reading through the Scripture. In a sense, going through it piece by piece. If you're having trouble, ask someone to hold you accountable. Maybe you're the type of person that's like, I'm going to read the Bible through in one year. Great. Do it. Maybe you're the type of person that's going to read through the Bible in 20 years. Great. Do it. But be in the Word. Be about prayer. Study about prayer. Take the the, the prayer that God taught His disciples and pray that daily. Do whatever it needs to happen to make sure that you're staying true to what God's called you to do. Then we talk about teaching. This is where I think a lot of people think, well, if it doesn't happen here within these four walls, it doesn't affect or it's not the church. There are people who are teaching Bible studies outside these walls. And I think of all people, we as Presbyterians, that's one of the things we actually do well. We can't teach anybody praise dancing. That's not going to happen. But we can go out and teach Bible studies. We have the truth. We know how to rightly divide the word. And I would love that there are Bible studies all through the city. Where we are teaching truth. Where we can confront false things. We're supposed to be about discipleship and evangelism. How are you doing it? And does it mean that you have to to evangelize 16,000 people? Or maybe, will one do? What is God calling you to do? Then we have nurture. How are you loving? How are you serving? How are you praying for? Clear things that we have. We have meals. We have people who have fixed cars for people. We've had people go and, and move people. We've had people clean out gutters. We've had people take care of uh, uh, Jerry. 
All these kind of things. We have plenty of opportunities to give to one another. Well, I can't get out and do things. You can pray. That is such an effective tool. What an incredible gift we have. And this says to reach you, we're supposed to have outreach in both local missions, outreach missions, world missions. And again, we a lot of people know that the, the Wilsons are having a, a barbecue every Thursday night and they have 70 people coming and stuff like that. That's great. That's awesome. I would love for all of us to do that. But do I need to make you feel guilty that if you don't have 70 people that your outreach doesn't matter? No. If you can do it to two people in your neighborhood, do two people. Use different means. Somebody gave me a gift for my birthday, and so we were over in Orlando. And so one of the things that I was able to do was um, to say to our server, um, I said, here's your tip, and it was a good tip. Thank you for your service. But then I laid down another $20 bills, and I said, I'll give you another $20 bill if you promise to listen to one sermon on our website. I said, I'm not going to check up on you. I'm not going to do anything. All I'm asking, you got 20 bucks. 20 bucks, listen to one sermon. She picked it up, took it, and I said, okay. And she said, I made a promise. I will listen. There are thousands of ways to come to Jesus. Get creative. Hey, you want to bag my groceries? I'll give you 10 bucks. Bag my groceries, take it in my car. But here's a better thing. Listen to the sermon. It doesn't have to be me. There's lots of great preachers out there that are faithful. And it doesn't even have to be a pastor. People are telling me all the time, I'm trying to get people to church so they come listen to you. And I said, you can tell them about Jesus. It doesn't have to be me. But tell the good news. But what you should never do is I should never come in here and say, if you haven't reached 20 people this year, bringing them to church at least one service, then you're going to hell. That's exactly where Tetzel was. And so I want you to understand that there have been things that have changed a little bit here. Because it's not quite the same as Tetzel because they actually, in some ways, they got the just kind of cut Tetzel off at one point. But what happened was that this started truly the Reformation, this doctrine. It's, this is such a key thing. Because what happens is Luther begins to debate Tetzel. Now they never meet. And Luther actually, he, uh, Tetzel actually dies pretty young. And Luther writes him a letter and says, you know, I'm hoping that, that you are saved. I hope that you, I will see you again one day. But they enter into this debate and it becomes known as the 95 Theses. And it's knocked up onto the Wittenberg door for a debate. Meaning it's written in Latin. So they want to debate with educated people. But it gets um, taken down. It gets uh, written into the German language. It starts to get spread. And it starts to spread all over the country. And so people are starting to listen in. So what's the difference? Why is Luther so upset about this Tetzel and the indulgences? Because for Luther, there was no contrition. What does that mean? It means that you could have bought these things and not be repentant for your sin. Now, there is folklore about this of some man who came and went and bought indulgences from Tetzel for a future sin. Now, what the future sin ended up being was he beat up Tetzel. 
Now again, that could be folklore. But it makes the point. If I could buy forgiveness of sins for things that I'm going to do in the future, and I could pay for it, some of you all better look out. I mean, think about that. And these people were believing it. And they were giving their money. And they were thinking truly that they were going to be forgiven. Now, one of the people, and I didn't write it down in in my study, so I don't know who said it, but I, I wrote it down because I think this is one of the greatest things that this says. One person said, if the Pope had a boundless treasury of extra merits, why did he not empty the whole of purgatory? If the Pope has the power to save people from purgatory, why hasn't he done it? Why does he need money? Because it's guilt. And when that begins to happen, we begin to have this false understanding. And so as this debate started to rage, what happened is purgatory became one of those things that was very specifically brought up. Because for purgatory, it's about purification. Okay? Now again, for the Catholic Church now, it's about purification, not punitive. So there is a distinction. Now I want you to understand, for Tetzel, he was saying, they're burning in hell. They're burning in fires. Not in hell, but they're burning in fire right now. They're being, um, they're being chastised for their decisions. So if you pay for them, they're going to get out. Now, the Catholic Church came back and said, well, we don't really believe that, Tetzel. So you kind of went a little too far. What we believe is that there is a purifying fire, which means that you sinned and your sins were so big or you didn't repent enough or you still like the idea of that sin that you still need to be purified. Now, one day you're going to heaven. So we're not getting people out of hell. If you go to hell, you go directly to hell, even with the Catholic Church. But for them, they're saying, hey, if you have given your faith to Christ, but your good works didn't add up, you're going to purgatory. Does everybody get that? Here's what it says. The latest edition. A play, this is purgatory is a place or condition of temporal punishment. Excuse me. Temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgressions. Now, where does this theology come from? Okay. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15, and I think this is very easy to refute. It's not the people that are being judged by fire. It is their works. Their works. Now, another place, and the place that they go to more than anything, is 2 Maccabees, Chapter 12, looking at verses 39 through 45. Now, what I imagine that most of you, if not all of you, don't have this to look up. So I have put it up here. You can go online. You can print it. So this is what 2 Maccabees says. On the next day, as by that time it had become necessary, Judas and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen and to bring them back to lie with their kinsmen and the sepulchres of their fathers. Then under the tunic of every one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. Okay? Then, 
And it became clear to all that this was why these men had fallen. So they all blessed the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals the things that are hidden. And they turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. And that the noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. Okay, so again, here's what's happening. The people were found, they're dead. They had these tokens on them that were not, they weren't supposed to have those tokens. They were idols. So the people started saying, hey, you know why these people died in battle? Because they had the tokens. So then he starts saying, hey, we need to pray. Okay, and even in this passage, I think they get it wrong. They, they're praying that the sin is taken care of, not that the people can be forgiven of their sins. But I go on. So he also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he, is, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. Okay? For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. Okay? This is the passage that they go to. Now, another passage in the Bible that we have is 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, again, this is a weird passage, okay, even for us. But it doesn't connect to modern day. It doesn't connect to their day. It connects back to the days of Noah. So we take what we have in our Bible and say, that can't be. And we don't have Second Maccabees. So is there a purgatory? No. There is no purgatory. Now, I want to give you an illustration. This comes from uh, Catholics for Dummies. And he gives a great example of two people. He says, I want you to think of it like this. Joe and Max were both born on the same day and both died on the same day. Joe was a gambler, boozer, and womanizer. And he was dishonest, lazy, and undependable. Max, on the other hand, spent his life obeying the Ten Commandments, practicing virtue, and loving God and neighbor. So just before dying, Joe repents of his old ways and accepts the Lord in his heart. Now here's what they ask. Should Joe and Max both go to heaven at the same time? Catholicism Catholicism teaches no. The church believes that Jesus' death allows everyone the possibility of heaven and his mercy grants forgiveness, but his justice demands that good be rewarded and evil punished in this life or the next. So if one man struggles all his life to be good while another lives a life of selflessness, greed and comfort, both can't walk through the pearly gates side by side. Now, so what they're saying is it's not fair for one person to be saved late in life and one person to be saved early in life, one person does bad things and one person does good things. This is why we, we went through and had such a big deal about sola fide and sola gratia. Grace alone and faith alone. In who? In Jesus alone. 
Christ is sufficient. For Christ made us to be perfect. He was the perfect, complete, and sufficient sacrifice. We see this because John 1, uh, 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews seven twenty seven. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then verse uh, chapter 10, for by a single offering, he is perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified, it is sufficient. Jesus died one time and he died for all sins, sins past and sins that you're still going to commit because he is the perfect sacrifice. That's why the curtain was ripped in two. That's why we can come in here and I'm not making you come in here crawling on your hands and knees. It's why we don't have to bring um, sacrifices anymore. That's why, as Hugh told us, we're supposed to be the living sacrifice. We're supposed to be that which goes forth. And as that, not only is he the sufficient, but it was immediately in God's presence. Immediately into the Lord's presence. We are fully cleansed, free from sin, glorified, perfected, and we are ultimately sanctified when we are in Christ. It means there is no waiting room. You're either in or you're not. You're either in heaven or you're in Hades. Immediately. And I'm not just making this up. The Bible tells it. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, for I'm hard pressed between the two. Remember, this is Paul. My desire is to part and to be with Christ for that is far better. Or remember Luke 23. Now I think if there's going to be any passage that you could go to, Luke 23 was it when he talks to the thief. I don't think the thief did anything to earn heaven. And I think Jesus, if he said that there's a purgatory, he would have said, I'm going to paradise today, but you're going to have to wait a little while. Because I'm good, you're bad, you have to be purified. But just know one day you'll be with me. Jesus says very clearly, today you'll be with me in paradise. So I I want this to be just emblazoned on you because we have to make sure we're right now. It's not then. And again, I, I appreciate the people that have come and said, you know, I lit a candle, I said a prayer for your mom. But I told them, I said, save your money. She's in heaven. And she's always been there since the time that she died. I appreciate it. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus was sufficient for her. And in that, that example that I gave Joe and Max, Joe gets to go at the same moment that Max does. Because it's not about Joe and it's not about Max. It's about who? It's about Jesus. And so that's why he comes with the last thing. Soli de gloria. To God alone be all glory. Because it's God who does the saving. Not you. Not man. 
not the Pope, not the Council, Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so good that we don't have to rely upon ourselves. Because we would be sadly mistaken to think that we have good hearts and good minds. But Father, through Christ, even our good works that are filthy rags are made into the wedding dress for the church. Because it's found to be purified in the blood of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us so that we might receive his perfect righteousness for all time. So, Father, thank you. May we truly do as we were told so many years ago to give you all glory and honor that you are rightfully due. For we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said.